The Alessal would like to stress that the opinions expressed on this podcast do not represent those of the Alessal as a whole. What's going on, guys? Welcome to Alessal After Hours. This is our podcast where we go beyond the 600 word limit on the page, and we discuss the news that's happening on campus and in the world. Today, we are talking about, you know, not only coronavirus again, but how it compares to past pandemics. So we've got a special guest in the studio today. Uh, who are you? Uh, right. I am Dr. Vongsathorn. I'm in the history department, and uh, my research and teaching is on the history of medicine and science. Right. So how much do you know about, um, like, past pandemics? Well, quite a lot. <laughs> It's my, that's uh, my, my job to know. I actually taught a class over the summer on uh, pandemics and history where we went through and looked at a lot of past pandemics and compared people's sort of responses to them to, to COVID-19 today. Was that class like planned or was it like in response to the COVID pandemic? It was in response. I've taught classes on disease history here before, um, but I had a study abroad that was set up for the summer and then got canceled. And so I turned uh, one of those classes into pandemics, uh, specifically in response to the circumstances. Cool. And so did you, I mean, did you do the sort of the same thing in that class where you sort of compare then versus now? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, basically, you know, we started with the Black Death in the 1300s, right? And, uh, and then later um, pandemics of, of the Black Death. And we basically just went through and sort of picked out what are some common features from this particular pandemic? How would we relate that to what's going on now, right? And sort of over time, as we went through a variety of different pandemics in the past, we always would discuss, you know, what are some elements that, that resonate with you in, at the moment, yeah. Right, right. I mean, I came here to sort of only discuss the Spanish flu, but it sounds like you know I mean, quite a bit on all of them. So I guess first question is, what would you say, has there ever been a response to a pandemic like this one? Because like, personally, I feel like, you know, we have sort of not done super well reacting to the COVID <laughs> pandemic, right? Is, is that comparable to past pandemics did, or did they do it better than us? No, it's, it's very comparable to past pandemics. Um, I mean, in that particular case, actually, the 1918-19 influenza pandemic is a good example because we actually do have statistics that correlate to social distancing measures. Um, so there's a few, you know, American cities, and we can actually map in the same way that we map now that, um, you know, when they introduced social distancing measures early and kept them in place for long periods of time, then we saw a steady decline in incidents. Um, but there were other cities like Philadelphia, for example, didn't institute them very quickly. Uh, and so they actually had the highest rate of deaths of most urban areas. Um, and it was, you know, even though it was only a week or two late um, with instituting the same measures, it still had a pretty big um, link to the death toll. And we can also, also see places where social distancing was relaxed and it had started going down and then they relaxed the measures and then it starts going up again. And sometimes the spike uh, the second time was even higher than the first. So yeah, this is a normal pattern of, of human behavior uh, and government behavior in response to pandemic, I would say. It's kind of weird how, I mean, you seem we, 
you think we would have like learned our lesson by now, right? (laughs) (laughs) You, you would think, but we never do, right? I mean, this is one of the things that we would talk about in class, like, how much do we really think that we're going to learn? I mean, often, you know, these, these sort of epidemic or pandemic outbreaks do cause changes. Um, For example, some of the past, like, pandemics caused changes to sanitation systems or cleaning water or changes to other sorts of public health measures. Um, And so it's not that they don't have any sort of lasting effect, but in terms of that sort of human desire to constantly be able to live your lives in the way that you're accustomed to living them, yeah, that doesn't seem to to change. And and people's memory, you know, of, of disease crises fades pretty quickly, right? Right. Um, so were they were they wearing masks back then as well uh in the u.s in the 1918-19 influenza pandemic no um in east asia yes some people were then why was it i mean if it was if it was normalized in east asia then why was it such a big deal at the start of this one because like people i mean at the start of this pandemic people were like I mean, not even people, just like the CDC and like official organizations were like, oh, like, we're not so sure if they work or whatever. Once again, that seems like something we would have figured out, right? Yes. And um, I mean, there's a lot of interesting strands behind the question of, of masks. One thing is that it's hard to prove exactly how effective masks are because Um, I mean, you can compare, like, if you're going to do, you know, a study on it, and you have reason to think that masks work, then ethically, you can't, like, expose people to COVID while they're wearing masks and while they're not wearing masks, right? Um, Because then you could be knowingly exposing people to the disease when there's a way of preventing it. So that's against um, medical experimentation laws. Uh, And so in that sense, you know, it's easy, it, it's not entirely inaccurate to say, like, oh, well, we don't have proof that masks work. But of course, you know, that's the case for, for many different medical experiments and, uh, and many different medical issues. And I think that a lot of it does tie back to this longer history of um, habits of mask wearing. And I mean, actually, I, I should rephrase, there were some people who wore masks in the 1918-19 flu epidemic in the U.S., but it just wasn't widespread. Um, whereas in East Asia, they actually, uh, during the time of pneumonic plague outbreaks in the late 1800s and early 1900s, they actually got in the habit of wearing masks at that point. And people in those societies wear masks anytime that they're sick to prevent. And so there's already this sort of established idea that wearing a mask is your sort of social duty or even your national duty in order to protect other people from catching your illness. Right. That's one of the one of the things I was thinking about was how, because I mean, I had known for a while that like places like Japan and stuff like that, they, you know, they wore masks just like on the regular or whatever. And uh, that's probably become I mean, I'd assume that after this, all this is over, that's going to be normalized in America as well, right? I can't, I can't see us going back to a, a 100% like, you know, quote unquote normal society after this, wouldn't you say? No, actually, I, I think it won't take very long for people to stop wearing really? masks all over again. Yeah. I mean, I guess, 
I mean, I guess with what we've discussed, with how people don't really seem to learn from these past pandemics, that isn't hard to assume. You're right. And there's other, I mean, there's other factors involved, like um, American society is a particularly individualistic one, right? Um, the way in which sort of Americans feel about their responsibility to collective society is a little bit more limited, whereas, you know, Japan, for example, right, they have uh, a much sort of stronger idea about what it means to be sort of a human in that society. Whereas in the US, we've always placed a, a very strong premium on individual liberties, right? And so this has actually been the case, like, you know, when smallpox vaccination was first introduced, when many, um, anytime any kind of compulsory medical measure has been introduced, there's always been backlash on the grounds of um, infringing on personal liberty. And there's always been, um, it's always been political, right, to some extent. Uh, and so, so in that sense, I think that there is actually, you know, when we have this, this sense of, of sort of individual choice and, and comfort um, in this society, then, then yeah, it's hard to imagine people making a regular practice of, of mask wearing. That's really- Dies away. That's, I hadn't thought about that, because I know like, you're right, because like, I mean, Japan is the country that has the, um, they have like a very like work oriented culture, right? Like they're all about um, like all working together to like develop, you know, like, you know what I mean? Like they all have like their responsibilities and they take that very seriously. But, but America is like, we're a lot more on like, you know, quote unquote American dream or whatever, like find, getting your own bag or whatever. So you, I get what you mean. Would you say that a, a country like, I'm trying to think of like a good, com like the USSR, if it was still around, like they were communist since like they're focused on like community and like all sort of like working together as one people, do you think they would have like handled the pandemic better? Well, yes and no. I mean, in theory, okay, we have actually seen that governments with authoritarian tendencies, as communist governments often have, um, are able to enforce certain measures more readily. So it's much easier to enforce people staying in the home and people wearing masks if you're willing to use your police and military to crack down, right, on anybody who doesn't follow those rules. Um, and so in that sense, you know, it, yeah, it is a little bit more feasible to institute these kind of widespread preventive measures. Um, but on the other hand, that doesn't necessarily mean that they will actually be able to provide the same sort of level of, of, of medical care and education and knowledge to everybody in the country. Because although the idea of communism is that we're all equal, the reality um, was very much, uh, you know, economic stratification, right? And a lot of people who, who, are, who are living in poverty. And so that's always a challenge to, um, for their health outcomes to address. That's, that's really interesting. Like we're a lot better off, like more capable to deal with this, but also our society just like doesn't want to. <laughs> like we're all about individualism. That's very interesting. Um, yeah. How did the government react? in specifically the the 19 you know the 1918 pandemic uh 
like because once again i don't think ours did a great job what did they did they institute the social distancing uh more immediately you might have said this already yeah um <clears throat> so it was variable by location right uh similar to now right american federal authority the authority of our federal government, right, our central government is less than it is in a lot of other countries. Um, and so oftentimes, right, those decisions are made um, at the state level or even, you know, more locally at, than the state level at the city and county level, right? Uh, and so you see a great deal of variation in how quickly social distancing measures were put in place. Uh, when the perceived threat of influenza started to, to grow. And so some places did uh, start social distancing very quickly and others did not. And another important thing to remember about that particular time is that um, for one, right, it's the end of World War I. And so we've got lots of soldiers coming home from abroad and sort of lots of changes, right? So it's a period in flux. And for another, influenza is a disease that appears every single year. Um, and there are years when the strain is worse and, and harms more people, but this was most definitely the, the deadliest uh, strain of influenza that we know of um, in human history, or at least in sort of recent human history. And so it, it, it wasn't as though people sort of immediately realized like, oh, this is something that's dangerous that we need to deal with in terms of, you know, distinguishing it from the normal like flu outbreaks that would happen. Right. And is so what I'm gathering from this conversation is that this pandemic isn't it seems like these things work in cycles, right? Like yeah. we kind of learn the same lesson every time. Is yeah. there anything that you would say like really actually stands out and makes COVID-19 different? Um, no, <laughs> except that. Um, I mean, I, I think that you could call some of the the pandemics that have happened in the last 20 or so years different. Um, this has a lot in common, COVID-19, with the much smaller outbreak of SARS um, some years ago. I think what's exceptional, if anything, about COVID-19 is how very closely interconnected our world is. Um, as time passes, we get, we tend to have more and more people traveling long distances quickly. And also with social media, um, you know, there have been some unique aspects to, to the way in which social media functions. But that being said, um, instantaneous information about epidemic outbreaks that is spread immediately to the public has been around since the Telegraph in the late 1800s. So, I, I, you know, even even like things like Twitter, you could compare in some ways to to past outbreaks. Yeah, right. And in past pandemics, how did the how did the opening up process work? Because I mean, we're kind of, I mean, I don't know. I'm sure you would as an would you as an expert say that we're sort of moving too quick when it comes to opening up things like movie theaters and stuff like that. Well. I mean, I'm not a public health expert, but the thing is that, yeah, in an ideal world, 
we would move slower to reopening. And I definitely think it's very clear from spikes in you know, COVID-19 cases in many American states that did start opening up, that they were opening up too quickly. I mean, we already have the evidence for that, really. Um, the thing that always has to be measured, though, when you know, quarantine is a tricky thing politically because people don't like it, right? And it can also, it has a lot of, it has, it affects people of, of different classes differently. Uh, and also people of different races differently, right? Um, it's not too bad for, for middle-class people, for example, often, um, but it's a lot harder for working-class people because either they um, are quarantined like completely and then that makes it extremely difficult to get food because you know they don't necessarily have the resources to hoard food right um or what more often happens is that you know society still has its essential functions and most of the essential workers are are working class people and therefore you know you have the very people who are going to be less likely to be able to afford good health care also the ones putting you know who are put at the greatest risk and so there's many different factors to weigh with these sorts of measures. And um, sometimes if the government holds on to these measures too long, then you get a sort of a, a public outcry that, that can even be worse, right, than, um, than the situation before. So yeah, it's a really tricky thing to manage for sure. I mean, we've already seen some of that with the the reopen protests at the very beginning. Like, I don't think they got too bad, but they definitely had the potential to. I see where that's coming from. Yeah, uh, and I mean, this is a more minor case. I mean, we tend to see m more like specifically focused responses when the quarantine measures are much stricter. Like our social distancing rules are really very mild compared to what could have been done by the government so and so i assume it was the same story back like you know in 1918 where people got i mean the railroads and stuff like trains people were getting back on the trains i assume just because like that was necessary to keep the country functioning yeah there's a necessity to keep the country functioning and then there's also the necessity to keep people happy right because politicians are going to be reelected eventually um, and also, you know, ideally, if you're going to impose measures, then you want people to follow them. And if you're really serious about people following them and they don't want to, then you have to involve the police and the courts, which is just going to cause a whole other level of problems, right? Um, and so it's definitely within the interests of, of governments to, at some times, maybe be more permissive because they know that they can't enforce the rules, right? Um, so yeah, that that you know, democracy, right? That need to keep um, to keep people happy, to keep people willing to vote for you, definitely plays a role in this kind of thing. Is there uh, in history? Have you ever seen an example of having to deal with an election during a pandemic? Um, I have no doubt that that has been the case considering the frequency of pandemics, but there aren't details around one that particularly come to mind right now, I wouldn't say. Right. Um, I mean, I'd imagine it was 
kind of a a mess compared to to the way it is now. Um, just you know, with all the the controversy going on. But um, and we've talked so, quite a bit. Of, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Just a um, there there was actually I I really don't know very much about it, but actually. Um, in the very early stages of the influenza pandemic in 1918, there was a presidential election um, in the U.S. Um, but I think there's a difference to it being very early on before all of the social distancing measures are input to, to now. So, sorry. Anyway. No, it's all good. Um, that probably worked as like a, a spreading event, I'm sure, right? Uh, very possibly, yeah. Um, so we've talked quite a bit about uh, you know, the Spanish flu and how that, and I think that's, it's easy to compare the Spanish flu to today because, you know, it's only like a hundred years ago, right? Is mm -hmm. there, because when I, as somebody who knows very little about, you know, history or pandemics, I think of like the Black Plague, right? It's mm -hmm. really hard to compare that to, I just think of a bunch of like peasants hiding in their homes and then like coughing and dying. Like I, it's, it sounds awful, but like, is, is there any like sort of rhyme or reason, like, because, I mean, we've established this thing works in cycles, right? Is is it the same back then? It's just like, like, did it did it work in the same way back then? Um, there are very, very, very many similarities between plague pandemics and COVID-19 today. Because ultimately, humans haven't changed all that much, right? Um, certainly from an evolutionary perspective, we haven't. Uh, so, of course, there are differences based on, um, you know, the medicines available and how people were or were not, you know, mobile and on environments because a lot of these diseases are also very much affected by environment and their transition, uh, transmission. Um, so, of course, there are a lot of differences, but you also see a lot of similarities. For example, um, a mistrust and resentment of the government, right? Um, you know, blaming them for not handling the pandemic uh, outbreak well enough or blaming them for instituting measures that are unpopular. Um, you know, we also see, it, you know, that's just one, right? There's a, there's a lot of other sort of human responses to, to pandemic disease that are pretty timeless um, regardless of, of when. Uh do you think that there's at all any kind of world where a government reaction to a pandemic would be what what the public would consider like correct? You know, like do you, do you think there's a world where where a government doesn't mess up in some way? I don't think there's a world where a government messes up messes doesn't mess up at all, but I think it's hard for me to imagine on the basis of how American society functions um that there's a world in which the US uh, government would always handle pandemics well. But I do think in other countries um, that have, that are different. Yeah, I mean, for example, um, you know, I do my research in, in East Africa and uh, Kenya has had, you know, the last I was reading about it, only 650 reported deaths from COVID-19. And I'm sure there's, you know, very likely to be more than that because of the, the limitations of record keeping, but that's still an incredibly small number in comparison to our country, for example, right? But in Kenya, people have the experience of living day to day um, with the threat of, of sort of 
of disease affecting them already, right? Like HIV AIDS is endemic and you can't really see it, right? And so you have to adjust your behavior around it. And so this notion of, of living with disease and taking measures to prevent the spread of disease is already there. So one of my friends who lives in Nairobi, which is the capital in Kenya said he, when he goes out, he doesn't see a single person not wearing a mask. Every single person is wearing a mask. And, uh, and they're very, very conscientious, right, about the spread of the disease. And the government is also, you know, like next door in Uganda, where I do my research, the government very early on um, cracked down on, you know, we, we're not going to have people out in markets, right? People are only, they had very specific past laws about sort of like uh, or practices put in place about who could move and where um, to try to restrict the spread of the disease. And, and in many countries, they actually have been very successful in keeping COVID-19 extremely low. New Zealand is another great example of that, right? So it is possible. It just takes a sense of sort of civic responsibility and understanding of the threat of disease that I don't think that we have in this country or that people have in many other countries as well. I mean, we're not alone in this. Right. New Zealand and uh, like Kenya would be different cases, right? Kenya is more so about they already understand the threat of a disease versus New Zealand. They've got like, I mean, they just shut down the country entirely, right? Like yeah. all ports and stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, there's elements of both, right? Because the only way in which it becomes acceptable to the citizens of a country to like shut everything down is if they are appreciative and understanding of the potential threat. So, you know, now like many people in this country, although not all, like understand that COVID-19 is a real threat. Um, but, you know, in the early months of disease, when closing down actually made a difference, uh, you know, there were many people like, uh, you know, I'd say the percentage of the population who thought that it was necessary to institute these measures was incredibly small as compared to right in New Zealand, where it was high enough that it was actually possible for the government to enact these measures and expect people to follow them. Mm -hmm. That's that's really interesting about how people in Kenya understand the threat of disease more. Would you say that in like the late 1800s, early 1900s, you know, like the 1918 pandemic, um, would you say in America specifically, the reaction would be at all better in some people than it was now just because, because like when I think of like, you know, that time period in America, I think of like cholera outbreaks and stuff like that. Would you say that the, the public was a little more accustomed to dealing with disease back then? In 1918, 19, not necessarily, um, because we, we see in the late 1800s, um, you know, what's often called the bacteriological revolution. Um, in the 1870s is when scientists start to identify sort of specific bacteria that are causing disease transmission. Um, we've got the, you know, the modern public health movement also comes up in the 1800s, which means, you know, sanitation and clean water. Um, and so, you know, from around the 1870s, especially changes in both preventive health and treatment were so rapid um, that in particular for, for Americans who could afford good healthcare and who could afford good living conditions, which is very much, you know, more to be sort of middle-class and often more to be white Americans as well. Um, there was a sense in which the rapid progress of medicine, right? And the rapid progress of modernity 
was making diseases less threatening. Um, for, for some who were, you know, living more in, in poverty or who, who were sort of disadvantaged, um, you know, in other ways, um, for them, yes, the, the threat of disease would, would have been more likely uh, a daily reality. So once again, as somebody who knows very little about all this, when I think of like past pandemics in general, I think of, I think of specifically the Spanish flu, um, or the 1918 pandemic, I'm not sure what the official name is, but think of that. I think of the Black Plague. I guess I think of like H1N1 in 2009. Is there any other, uh, you know, pandemics or even epidemics that you would say make particularly like good points about this current one that we're dealing with right now that you think that are kind of flying under the radar in public, uh, public knowledge? I mean, I think that there are, there are many uh, pandemic outbreaks that, that provide a good framework of comparison. Um, I think you mentioned cholera earlier, and, and cholera is, uh, is, is one where I think there are, uh, because it was something that happened primarily in the 19th century, right, and also the early 20th century, um, we can see a lot of parallels with cholera. Um, yellow fever is another one as well. And also, um, you know, more recently, HIV AIDS, right? We don't tend to think about that as a pandemic. Now it's endemic, but it is also and was pandemic disease, right? That's new um, to, to humans, right? And um, smallpox is another interesting one as well that has a lot of sort of similar common points as does measles. Um, so yeah, there's a range of, <laughs> yeah. of pandemics and epidemics that have a lot in common. Terrible, disgusting diseases. Um, well, I mean, that covers the questions that I had. Is there anything else that you think I've missed out on or anything else that you feel is important to add? Um, I mean, there are sort of, there's, there's, that's a difficult question for me to answer because I could talk for, for days and weeks and months and in fact have, right, when I'm teaching classes about it, about all these outbreaks. I guess the sort of the, the key, you know, takeaway I would, would emphasize is that we tend to, as humans, um, have always had in the past a tendency to try to explain and understand epidemic outbreaks and in that process of trying to explain and understand um, come a lot of the political and social responses to epidemics that we have felt. So things like scapegoating, um, the blame placed on foreigners. Um, for example, we call the influenza, right, the Spanish flu. This is actually going back to the fact that um, Spain was neutral in the World War I, and so they were one of the only places where the media outlets weren't being censored in, in the time of war because, you know, in, in wartime, they keep pretty close tabs on the media. And so we associate it with, with Spain, and there's a lot of other, you know, epidemic outbreaks that we associate with with migrants, right, or, or, or other people that leads to sort of scapegoating, that leads to prejudice and other problems. Um, and another thing that I, that, you know, we didn't really talk about that I do think is also important to think about is that pandemic disease 
it sort of highlights pre-existing tensions that already are there in society, right? Um, and, you know, in most of these pandemic diseases, we actually have examples of riots happening while they're going on. Um, so, you know, some of the, you know, the riots connected to and protests connected to the Black Lives Matter movements, I mean, to me, these are, you know, really closely resemble uh, riots that happened during cholera outbreaks, which are not necessarily even strictly about the disease. They're about um, people's anxieties, right? Um, or, you know, fears that people already have. They, they've, there are riots that were directed towards the police, riots that showed mistrust of the government, um, that showed you know, very often it was people who felt that the government didn't represent them or their interests adequately, who were the ones who were sort of involved in these, these protests, which occasionally um, spilled over into, into riots. And so um, that sense of sort of the, the social tensions that come out and become public during times of, of pandemic or epidemic is, is definitely not new. That's right. That's... I mean, geez, I hope if anything good can come from this pandemic, it's, you know, some change in America when it comes to the police and stuff like that. I'm glad, I'm glad like, it's sort of instigated those talks, at least. But, you know, we try to, we try to end the show on, like, a more of a positive note. We talked about, <laughs> <laughs> just talked about terrible diseases the entire time. What, what is it that's been getting you through your quarantine, Dr. V? Like, what TV show or hobby have you been doing that's just, like, been keeping you sane? Well, I got a kitten um, pretty early on, so uh, so that's providing a measure of, of sanity. Uh, and I also got really uh, into gardening for the first time as well. So the plants grow and change every day, and so that's something that separates the days. So yeah, uh, those two things together have been occupying a great deal of, of time. Yeah, my dad's been gardening. It's definitely like done the same for him, I think. But I think that's going to wrap it up for us today, guys. Okay. Make sure to check out uh, our other podcast, The Alessal News Bite. And thank you so much for listening. Uh, Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you.